I'm Crystal Siracus. Welcome to Off the Page, the show featuring good books and good conversations with authors from our own region and from around the world. My guest today is Carrie Blakinger. She's the author of Corrections in Ink, a memoir that details her life from being a figure skating competitor with an eating disorder to her life as an addict. In 2010, while she was attending Cornell University, she was arrested for drug possession and spent the next two years incarcerated, first in the Tompkins County Jail and then serving a sentence in upstate New York. After she was released, she finished her degree and went on to become a journalist. She wrote for the Ithaca Voice, the Houston Chronicle, and she's now a reporter covering prisons and jails for the Marshall Project. As a content note, my conversation with Carrie does touch on addiction and suicidal ideation. It contains details that may be upsetting to some listeners. Carrie, thank you so much for talking with me today. Thanks for having me. So I want to start out and say that this was a really hard book to read. And I can't imagine how it was not only that, you know, this was your life, everything you experienced as an addict going to prison, coming out of prison, but was this also really hard for you to then write about? You know, I don't think I sort of realized how hard it was as I was writing it. It would be after I'd finish a particularly dark chapter, then like the next week I'd realize, oh, wow, I I am, I, w- I was really crabby for the past like two weeks. And I'm, you know, that's when I would notice it when I was done writing and I'd look back. Um, But I was also writing this during the pandemic. I mean, I was writing a lot of this in 2020 and into 2021. So, you know, it was a pretty obviously isolated time on top of all that. So that's exactly the time you want to really delve into. (laughs) on this. Right. Well, well, so when I started, like I so I I signed the book deal in the end of uh, 2019 and I started writing in the beginning of 2020 and I was maybe three or four chapters in when the pandemic hit. And then I just gave up for like three months. I did nothing because I was like, we're all going to (laughs) die. I was like, I'm not writing a book. Nobody's going to be alive to read it. (laughs) And then like I got to the like July of 2020, like the middle of 2020, I was like, oh, oh, people are still alive. This was not the apocalypse. (laughs) I think I need to finish this. (laughs) I like that you're a glass half full kind of person. (laughs) You wrote in the book that, you know, journaling, writing has always been important to you, that even in prison, you wrote things down all the time. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I I journaled a lot when I was in jail in prison. Um, and I'd always journaled some, but I really uh, didn't, well, you know, you don't have a lot else to do for one. So I had time to journal um, far more than I ever had before. But also a couple of days after I got arrested, there was another woman in the cell block that said to me, hey, you know, you should really start keeping a journal because maybe someday this would make a good book or at the least it's all too wild not to write this down. Um, so I listened to her and I went and bought, you know, the yellow legal pads on the commissary, which was, you know, our only kind of paper we could get. And I started filling up legal pad after legal pad with just sort of notes and observations and journaling about my time. And I, I kept doing that the whole way through, although when you journal behind bars, like there are certain risks to that because anything that you have in your possession can theoretically be confiscated and potentially used against you, whether it's just sort of observations about other prisoners or whether it's, you know, talking trash about the guards or just detailing something that happened that might have, you know, violated some minor rules. So I would mail, I would, you know, mail out 
a few pages at a time every few days so that I didn't never have too much actually on me. Um, and, you know, in that way, I managed to keep all of, you know, keep all of my journals, although that also meant that I didn't have anything to look back on. So the first time I actually read through them all was not until after I got out. What was that like? It was interesting because I could see such a shift in myself over the course of it. Like it sort of started with me detailing all of the cell block drama in like wrapped detail. And then it became more introspective and, you know, visibly calmer. You wrote about your early life as a figure skater, a very demanding household, maybe not the best relationship with your parents. Do you think that those experiences fed into what would become your addiction problems? Yeah, totally. I mean, I, I, addiction doesn't happen in a vacuum. I think sort of everything contributes. I, I think my existing mental health and the you know, environment, the ways in which that exacerbated certain parts of my mental health, um, yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot that went into that. One of the things that struck me is that you seemed very clear on what you were doing throughout this journey. And you wrote that you were essentially just bent on self-destruction. Were you really aware at the time of, of what you were doing? Totally. I mean, I, I, I was at times, um, you know, openly suicidal. And at times, I, I think it was more... Um, you know, I wasn't sort of like overtly trying to, you know, kill myself, but at least struggling with suicidal ideation. So, yeah, I, I, I think that was very apparent to me at this time. Do you remember when you decided that you really wanted to get sober? Um, yeah, there was there was a few there were a few moments. I remember one point not long after I'd been in jail, there was um, there was one day that I was sitting there, I think, writing a letter or something at the table in the in the common area in the cell block and I remember just sort of looking up and, and realizing it was incredibly quiet you know it wasn't a big cell block probably only held like eight people maybe but you know eight women there's always noise and I looked up and it was just really quiet and there was a few people that were I think out at rack or something but I realized that everyone who was still there was quiet because they were high and I was like wow I I'm so glad that's not me. I'm so glad that I am not the person in the room making the bad choice because it had for so long been like I was the person always making the dumb choices. And I was so grateful to not be in the position of trying to figure out if I was going to get caught or how I was going to get more or, you know, was I going to wake up feeling guilty the next day or who was I going to lie to and where was I going to get money from? And I, I was... I was just so glad to be on the other side of that. So that was one moment, but there were definitely, there were definitely others. You know, that's one of the things of many, I think, that surprised me because I feel like that there is this idea that it's almost good for someone who is an addict to go to jail because at least there, they're going to get sober. And yet, you know, you're writing about your time in Tompkins County Jail and in prison and drugs seem to be pretty readily available. Yeah, I think that's definitely a misconception about jail that that it's guaranteed sobriety because it's absolutely not. And, you know, to be clear, as much as I describe there being drugs in jail and prison and, you know, I could get heroin delivered to my bedside when I was in prison. But even e even so, there are a lot less drugs in the places that I was in jail and prison than there are in many. I mean, as a reporter now, I cover federal prisons. I cover Texas prisons. Um, you know, there are 
prisons where it is easier to get drugs in prison than in the free world. Um, and I think that people don't understand that, you know, and, and I think there's an incentive to not understand it because if you tell yourself that, Hey, at least putting people in jail will get them sober, you know, it allows you to, to justify and not feel bad about what's, you know, what the default solution is. But the truth is that that solution is not effective in the way that we think it is. How does this still happen? You also wrote about there not really being clear rules. Is part of that what feeds this ability to still get drugs in prison? I mean, so so not quite. Um, The way that drugs are getting into prisons now most commonly is through staff. You know, in some places people are, you know, soaking mail in drugs and getting it in that way. And in some places, you know, they're getting it in through like the back gate, like in some truck. But the common ways are through staff or occasionally through drone drops. Um, there's some prisons where people have enough access to like the rec yard um, in a place that's not particularly monitored or to the roofs and they can get drone drops onto roofs and, and, and pull them off. But like really overwhelmingly it's staff because they're the people who have the ability to get these things in, especially when it comes to things like contraband cell phones, because that is something you cannot mail in. You can sometimes get it in a drone drop, but there's a lot of people um, a lot of prison systems where people don't really have the access to, you know, retrieve materials from a drone drop or, you know, the perimeters are actually monitored enough that you can't. The main ways that people are, are getting drugs have been always through staff. I mean, some facilities occasionally have a different primary route, but overall, I mean, I've done a lot of reporting on this and I talked to a lot of guys in a lot of different prison systems and I talked to a lot of staff in a lot of different prison systems. And I, I think it's pretty well understood by people in that world that, you know, that staff are a main source of this. Is there anything in particular that you've heard from people who have read the book that maybe they're like, there's this common moment of, holy crap, I had no idea that went on? No, I don't think there's been sort of a common thing one of the things that I have, um, I've, I think I've heard more detailed feedback from people who've done time or are doing time. I, I mean, I hear feedback from lots of people who have no connections to criminal justice, but the people who've given me the sort of most detailed feedback are often those who have experienced it. And that's actually some of my favorite feedback. There's, there's one person that I actually knew from Thompson's County um, not from when I was in jail, but she was in jail later after me when I was teaching a writing class in the county jail. And, you know, she told me that it felt so validating to read someone else's um, experiences and see that they were so similar and that, you know, I had so many of the same thoughts and, and reactions to it all. And I, that had never even occurred to me that people would read this and find it validating. Like that, I, I don't know, it, it, that had just not been a reaction I'd even thought about. And that was, I don't know, so rewarding to hear. How important do you think that validation is for people who are either in jail today or have been? You know, I think it's, um, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I think it's hard to measure, but I do know that when I read Orange is the New Black, when I was in prison and, you know, close to getting out, I was so moved by that book. And I, I, I mean, I cried during it. And it's funny because I, I don't think that it's actually a book that a lot of readers would necessarily cry during. Like I, it's not sort of, it doesn't have sort of some of the same dark parts that, that like mine does. Um, 
So it was kind of an unusual reaction for me. And I think that's because it was so unusual to see my experience reflected in writing. Like there are so few books that are memoirs about women's prisons. And just seeing yourself reflected in media is, is so powerful, especially when it is a an experience that's, you know, traumatic and significant and one that many people can't relate to. I mean, I, I only wish that there were that there was more diversity in the people that are writing these kinds of memoirs. Like, you know, there's not there's not a ton of women's prison memoirs. And I, I wish that there were more that showed more representation from writers of color. You write about a lot of the women that you met during your time in jail and in prison. Was there anyone in particular that was influential or just really important to you? I, I mean, I think one of the families that ended up having a, a lot of influence was the family that took care of my dog when I was locked up. Um, I had a dog before I got arrested. And on the day that I got arrested, she was not with me. I, you know, we usually sort of went everywhere together, but I happened to be walking outside alone and she was in my apartment. And so when I got arrested, I didn't know what happened to her. And it turned out that the property manager had given her to a family to watch. And they said that, you know, they would give her back afterwards, which was just amazing, but I didn't yeah. quite believe it. And, you know, it's this nice family, um, David and Floriana, and they had um, they have a nice house in Cayuga Heights and, you know, they could give my dog this life that I couldn't. And it felt like such, um, you know, such a sign of how badly I screwed up and such a loss on my part. Like Charlotte, my dog had been the sort of one person that didn't look at me different during my addiction. And then when I got arrested and, you know, lost her, like it was such a sign that I'd let down that one person who didn't judge me. But then when I got out, they actually did give her back and we ended up becoming very close because of her. And they turned out to be like second family to me. And um, obviously that's not someone I met in jail, but that's certainly someone that I met because of jail. And they were so key in helping me restart my life afterwards. So I want to talk about your life after prison for people who haven't experienced this, if understanding what life in prison is like is hard, do you think that people have any real idea what re-entry into, I guess, the normal world is like? I mean, I think on the one hand, it's a little bit easier to see because it's not behind razor wire. Um, but on the other hand, I find that, you know, it's sometimes surprising to me the gaps in what people know or believe about it. You know, I'm surprised that people are so commonly shocked when I tell them that I have trouble finding housing and um, that a felony even more than 10 years later, a nonviolent felony can still have all sorts of collateral consequences. And, you know, despite the fact that there are so many people with felonies, you know, out here living among us, I think a lot of people don't actually know the ways in which the collateral consequences still impact our lives. I want to I want to circle back to when you were arrested in 2010. You've written that that time period was almost fortunate for you because that was just after some of the final repeals of what were the Rockefeller drug laws in yes. New York state. Do you think much about how different it would have been if you had been arrested in 2008 instead of 2010? 
Yeah, all the time. So the Rockefeller drug laws, for anyone who you know doesn't know, were some of the most draconian mandatory minimums, some of the, the first um, major mandatory minimum in the country. And they were, you know, laws that included three strikes, you're out, and also uh, potentially life sentences, even for first time drug offenders. And under those laws, the amount of drugs I had would have been eligible for a sentence of 15 to life. But those laws started getting repealed in 2004 and then again in 2009. And by the time I got arrested in 2010, they had been you know, largely phased out. Um, but had I been arrested under the old laws, I would still be in prison and not even eligible for parole yet. Do these kind of draconian drug laws still exist in the U.S. today? Um, yeah, in a lot of places, they, they're not as draconian. Some places have, you know, repealed them. But, you know, the feds still have, um, you know, they, they still have pretty harsh sentencing guidelines. Um, you know, there's no parole in the feds. So you end up doing a large chunk of the time that you get. Um, so, you know, some of this is definitely still a vestige of the war on drugs. I mean, we still have the crack powder um, disparity has been like an issue that has taken so many years to try to mitigate. Your path from prison, you were able to finish your degree at Cornell University afterward, and then you started writing um, originally for the Ithaca Voice, still around, still a great paper. Um, and then you went on to the Houston Chronicle. You now write about criminal justice for the Marshall Project. Did you know then that this might be the path that you wound up on or the kind of writing that you wanted to do? No, I did not. I, um, I think I thought like it was, it, you know, I think I would have thought it was almost trite for the felon to be writing about felons as if like that was all I could do, you know, and I just wanted to be a good reporter, not a reporter who's good for being a felon. But you know, at some point, I when I was at the Houston Chronicle, the death penalty reporter had retired, and my editor asked me if I wanted to take that over, and that sort of expanded into covering prison conditions and prisons broadly, and juvenile justice and jails, and you know, eventually it ended up that I was just sort of broadly covering criminal justice, and I realized that I was good at it. I, I've been following your work, uh, you know, writing about a lot of the conditions in prison, which in the United States are just horrific. Um, you know, I've been reading about how Texas prisons don't have working smoke detectors. Oh, my God. Yes. So glad to talk about this. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So this is this was so wild to me. In 2020, there, because of the pandemic, people had a lot more prolonged access to contraband cell phones. People have always gotten contraband cell phones, but because the guards didn't want to go in and search individual cells as much, people were holding on to them longer. And they started getting bolder with them because, you know, the conditions were so bad and people were desperate. And some people started reaching out with video of fires burning in the tiers of, of Texas prisons and just burning and burning. And, you know, I started digging around and it turned out that part of the reason this was even possible was because the fire alarms didn't work. And the state fire marshal's office had been, you know, dinging the Texas prisons for more than a decade, you know, telling them repeatedly that these fire alarms, you know, need to be fixed, but that would cost millions of dollars. And, you know, the state fire marshal doesn't have the authority to shut down a prison because you still have people there that need to be housed somewhere. 
So this continued to be something that was not prioritized. And even after I wrote about it in 2020 and published video of fires burning, um, not much changed. And then late last year, somebody actually, um, you know, somebody actually died in a fire in their cell. And, you know, I dug into that and I wrote a story about that. And then it happened again in March. And then it happened again in July and again in August. And now there's been four people that have died in fire-related deaths in Texas prisons in less than a year. Um, there was also a riot last week um, that was that where people started setting fires, although nobody was injured in that. Um, but it's so it's so wild to me because I don't hear about this in the other states that I cover. I mean, it could be happening. People are just covering it up, and I'm not finding out about it. But I think most states have um, functional fire alarms. I mean, it's hard to say. I went and I asked every state prison system if they have fire alarms in the housing areas, and um, most of them said yes. Florida refused to answer. So, I mean, I guess that's the no. <laughs> um, and um, I don't know how many of those work. I mean, I, I imagine a prison system would not tell me, oh, you know, yeah, we have fire alarms, but they don't work. So, you know, I don't, I don't know if it's possible that there's other states that this could occur in, but, you know, that could not occur in New York. Like we had fire drills, fire alarms absolutely would have gone off. Like I've talked to people in other states who say, no, fire alarms would go off if we started a fire. Um, so I have not heard of this happening elsewhere. And it, it's shocking. I mean, it is not the only appalling or shocking thing that is happening in Texas prisons right now. Um, I think they've been a mess and a building mess for years. And I know that Mississippi was in the spotlight pre-pandemic for being particularly bad. And Alabama has been in the spotlight because, you know, the DOJ has been involved there. But I think Texas is approaching that sort of level of dysfunction. Carrie, I'd love for you to read a section from your book for us, but I just want to note that some of these details may be upsetting for listeners, especially as you read about your experience in solitary confinement. On Friday, April 29th, the female cell blocks were, again, at capacity. We knew that if anyone new showed up, people were going to get boarded. And sure enough, late that night, a new girl arrived in booking. My bunkie at the time, a tattooed military vet named Stephanie Brewer, was nervous. But this was the one time I thought for certain I would be safe because I had an upcoming court date. I was scheduled for sentencing the first week of May. If they shipped me an hour and a half away now, they'd just have to come pick me up again in a few days. Surely, I thought, this time I could breathe easy. For once, I did not panic. Just after we locked in for the night, a guard popped open the thick cell block door with a heavy thunk and shouted, Blakinger, Brewer, pack up. My hands shook as I threw everything I owned into blue plastic bins to leave behind in Tompkins County. We did not know where we were headed, only that we would be starting over as strangers with nothing. After whispering goodbyes through the cell bars, we left our friends and a guard led us to the holding cell to wait next to the vomit cake shower stall that had greeted me on my first day. We didn't get into the Shenango County Jail until 2.30 a.m., in part because the guards got lost on the way while we bounced around in the back of the van, shackled in the dark. No one could see us when we finally gave in and cried, or when our tears and lack of sleep turned into delirious excitement. Steph, they have soda on the commissary there, I remembered suddenly. You know, like Jenny said, actual bubbly caffeinated soda. Our sniffles dissolved into hysterical laughter. And it's two floors, she hissed back. There are stairs. Not on the commissary, duh. I'm excited to walk up stairs. 
Punch drunk on panic, we breathlessly recounted everything we'd heard. Two-piece uniforms instead of jumpsuits, clean showers, TVs with all the channels, free warm meals a day, real coffee, salt, pencils, white paper. As we talked, I could hear the desperation lapping around the edges of her excitement, but I couldn't see it. It was pitch black in the back of the van, the only friendly face I knew replaced by a disembodied voice in the dark. By the time we made it through booking, it was after dawn. We stumbled into our new cells bleary-eyed, still wet from delousing, and, I thought, ready to weather a few days in isolation as we waited for clearance from medical so we could mingle with everyone else. In the free world, I'd like spending time alone, so solitary confinement didn't sound that bad. But solitary is not so much being alone as it is being buried alive. It only took me a few seconds to figure that out. As soon as the door clunked shut behind me, the weight of seclusion hit me like a wall of dark seawater, knocking me off my feet and leaving me gasping for breath. I broke into sobs. The cell seemed so much smaller than the cells in Tompkins County. The window was a narrow rectangle near the ceiling that I couldn't see out of. The walls were a maddening shade of bright neon white. And unlike at my home jail, there were no bars at the front of this cell. It was a thick door with a tiny slit for a window, just like I'd heard about from other women who'd been boarded out before. One cell over, Steph tried to talk to me by hollering into the toilet, but I couldn't make out the words. The voices drifting up from the day room were muffled and nonsensical, like someone had slipped an opaque filter over reality. The women's housing area, called a pod, was much bigger than in Tompkins County and probably could have held five times as many people. About a third of the bunks were in an open dorm, with rows of dangerously narrow stacked beds and a shared toilet out in the open. The other two-thirds, where they put me and Steph, were arranged into two tiers of one-person cells with a walkway on the upper floor, like a shitty motel. From where I was on the second story, I could not see or hear the TV in the common area below. There was no clock and no way to keep track of time. I only remember leaving once to talk to a nurse downstairs with the meds cart. It was a two-minute conversation, and I told her my lips were chapped and bleeding from the dry air. I wanted to know if I could have one of the single-use petroleum jelly packets I saw sitting on her cart. She glanced up with a scowl and rolled her eyes, not bothering to answer. If I wanted such luxuries, I'd have to wait a week for commissary to come in. For now, all I had was a plastic cup, a pencil, two sheets of blank paper, a rule book, a toothbrush, toothpaste, a Bible, and orange jail-issued clothes that weren't nearly thick enough for the freezing Shenango cells. I didn't have crosswords to solve or books to read or space to run. With no sense of time or place, I quietly lost my mind to a degree that still terrifies me. I had never known my grip on reality could become so tenuous so abruptly. But it did, and I spent the next few days in a half-awake fugue state, unmoored and incorporeal, like the brain in a vat we used to talk about in philosophy class at Rutgers. I drifted between waking and sleeping, hardly able to do either, and hardly able to tell the difference. I banged my head against the wall for a distraction and made myself throw up just to pass the hours. I tried to journal on my two pieces of paper, but struggled to finish a thought. I tried to read, but could not comprehend the words. I was numb and detached, losing time as I watched my life from the outside. One day, who knows which one, I dumped the milk from my lunch on my head, just to see if I could still feel. How had this happened so quickly? Was this a complete break from reality? Was I insane now, or had I always been? I'd never so badly wanted to separate my mind from my body. 
I schemed to figure out if I could, calculating whether it was possible to crack my head open and bleed to death with a carefully orchestrated fall or shove a noose through the air vent near the ceiling. Would that be enough to kill me? Or was I already dead? In life, so much of who we are is defined by the choices we make, how we see the world, and how we relate to the people around us. Solitary takes away all that. We may call it shoe or segregation or medical observation, but whatever words we use are a shorthand for the truth, a coded way of saying, you are nothing and now you have nothing. Your world is only a tangle of dreams and reality drifting through the sterile air of a nine by six coffin. Carrie, thank you so much for talking with me today. Thanks for having me. Carrie Blakinger's book, Corrections in Ink, is available now. If you're struggling with addiction, you can call the New York State Hopeline for help. The number is 1-877-8-HOPE-NY. And if you're thinking about suicide or you or someone you love is in crisis, call the National Suicide Hotline for help. Just dial 988. Off the Page is a production of WSKG Public Media. I'm your host and producer, Crystal Siracus. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you'll join me next time we go Off the Page. Page.